The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the second day of our Spring 2020 Urban Retreat and the date is the 21st of October. Um, this is the first talk um, that I've given since the election here and I wanted to um, start off uh, reading from um, a short piece that was published the day after the election by uh, Anne Salmond and then I want to turn to a, a text by um, Susan Murphy which I was reading during my retreat and found uh, very inspiring and helpful. Um, we may not get all the way through the material I want to uh, look at but we can, if we don't we can save it for another time. So in this talk I'll be drawing on two wise women um, from our from our general area Anne Salmon is a New Zealander and um, Susan Murphy is, is um, Australian so first turning to the, the um, article by Anne Salmon um, Anne Salmon is, is, uh, was born in 1945 uh, she's an anthropologist an environmentalist and the writer of many books, um, many fine books. She's actually um, been made a dame by the, by the um, whoever makes people dames. <laughs> um, one of the interesting things about her is that um, she was mentored by uh, Eruera and um, Ameria Sterling, uh, Nati Paro elders, Nati Kahunanua or so, and um, it seems just from what I've read about it that this was uh, relationship was um, akin to a master disciple relationship, uh, much uh, deeper than than a normal teacher student um, connection, but really really um, profound, a profound connection that she had to these two, both of whom have passed away now, I think. Um, but a kind of relationship which is necessary um, when uh, communicating the deepest truths of our lives and, and um, especially across cultures, which this was. So her, her article mentions one of these two mentors and we'll, we'll reach that um, at some point in this talk. The, the title of the talk is Navigating by the Stars. She says, Last night, Jacinda Ardern and the Labour Party won an historic victory. In a landslide, they've been given our trust to guide us on a dangerous and unpredictable journey. In these turbulent times, Aotearoa is lucky to have a leader who has vision and the capacity to inspire collective goodwill, courage, and de determination. I think everybody, even her opponents, agree on uh, what an extraordinary communicator um, Jacinda Ardern is. But it, it goes beyond that. It, it goes to this capacity to inspire collective goodwill, courage, and determination. We saw this also with the mosque shootings. And you have to be authentic to really be able to inspire collective goodwill and to, to motivate people to do um, things which may not be in their own best interest in terms of their, the narrow, narrow um, interests, but to help people to see this this, um, the, the greater good, what needs to be done for the greater good. She continues, the radical idea of Araha is replacing a neo-liberal mythology of life as a market based on egos pursuing their own interests, which in New Zealand as elsewhere has led to ravaged landscapes, fractured communities and broken individuals. Um, just for the benefit of the um, North Americans who are listening to this, 
Aruha is um, a word from Māori, which means love um, in the in the broadest kind of way. Um, you could link it to to um, caritas, um, and and it's it's especially associated with a wide, deep kind of a love. Arohanui, great love. So let me just repeat this this sentence again. The radical idea of aroha is replacing a neoliberal mythology of life as a market based on egos pursuing their own interests. The, of course, the, the epitome of this um, sort of mythology of life right, right now is um, uh, Donald Trump, who after his his uh, bout, mild bout of COVID, was going around saying, I'm immune, I'm immune. Um, so self-centered was he that he couldn't, couldn't see that his immunity was not the point, but whether he was infectious or not. So blinded to anything but one's own interests. This is the neoliberal mythology of life. Survival of the fittest. Which is actually... You know, comes from Darwin, but is a mangling of his meaning, his original meaning. But it's not like we've been immune from this mythology of life. Um, as Salmon says, which in New Zealand as elsewhere has led to ravaged landscapes, fractured communities, and broken individuals. The, the removal of a lot of social um, safety nets in the 90s has is going to take probably generations to repair as it has hurt generations of people. Jacinda Ardern understands that Aotearoa's future depends on all of us, not just her supporters and our care for each other. Our future depends on our care for each other. Salmon continues, like our ancestors who crossed the Pacific Ocean, we are facing many dangers. Many of, our, of the old homelands are riven by conflict. The destruction of habitats has forced wild animals and human beings closer together, making it easier for viruses to jump the species barrier. Like our friends and families in other countries, we are stricken by a global pandemic. And Salmon here is reminding us, pointing out um, something that has been pointed out before in the Zendo and elsewhere, of the important link between the pandemic and the wider planetary crisis that we're in. Wild animals being brought out of what little forests are left to become exotic meals in China. The bats and the pangolins probably caged near each other and this virus passing through them to humans. destruction of habitats has forced wild animals and human beings close together. And it's not just this pandemic, but, but previous uh, ones as well. With collapsing ecosystems and climate change, the world itself seems to be turning against us. At times, it is almost too heart-wrenching to think of the future for our children and our grandchildren. Yes, I think most of us have, have felt this. And yet, to think about, or at least to face the future we are creating, is something we must do, we're called upon to do. And that's where the second um, source that we're going to look at in a little bit um, can be very helpful. How do we do this? 
How do we find a way to keep our hearts open and our minds engaged with this problem, this vast network of different problems that we have created as human beings living on this planet? She continues, In this election, though, Kiwis have decided not to ignore the dangers and to tackle these together with a large majority for Labour and the Greens and a leader who is determined to govern by consensus, we have chosen amity over acrimony, generosity over self-serving, and reality over self-deception. I noticed when I read this that um, Anne Salmond has, has named the three poisons and their opposites. Acrimony, another way of saying hatred, self-serving, another way of putting greed, and self-deception, a very um, to-the-point way of talking about our delusions, our delusive thinking. And the other point she makes here is uh, a leader who is determined to govern by consensus. This is, a, this is a great challenge that she's going to have to face with all, all the problems that uh, now she's expected to um, deliver on. It's, we're in a climate emergency and transformation is needed. But how do we bring everybody along? Because if we don't, then this collective effort will be weak. And we've seen what happens when um, people aren't brought along in other countries and where the, the, the action against the pandemic has been so much less successful in places where individualism is, is rife. Some pundits describe Jacinda Ardern as cautious, but I think they are mistaken. I think we have a leader who is bold and visionary, but understands the need to take as many New Zealanders as possible with her on the wild ride ahead. I, I really hope that, that Anne Salmond is right here. We certainly saw Jacinda Ardern show boldness and decisiveness on when she made the decision to go into the first lockdown. It's, it was now famously described us as going hard and early. That took courage. But, but the bigger battles, this will be, this will be where this, this courage is tested over these next three years. Then Anne Salmond um, offers a model from Tao Māori that might assist us in, in uh, the journey that we have ahead as, as a country and as a species. She says, in ancestral time, a star navigator had to follow the birds and the whales and work with winds, swells and currents to cross a vast and tumultuous ocean. Moana Nui Akiwa, the Pacific Ocean. At night, they watched the stars, and as one star rose above the horizon, they picked up the next star and the next star on the path to reach their destination. Their waka were flexible and fast and had to be strong enough to survive the buffeting winds and waves. Um, a waka is is the te reo, or the Maori word for canoe, but it also means vehicle. So um, to say in Maori terms that we we Zen, Zen folks are part of, of the um, uh, waka of um, the Mahayana. 
detailed vehicles. So it's used for um, buses and cars and planes or the kinds of waka. Their waka were flexible and fast and had to be strong enough to survive the buffeting winds and waves. They had to inspire the crew with confidence that they could reach the safe landfall and find a new and marvellous land. They here is referring back to um, star, the, the star navigators. She continues, Between Labour the Greens and the Māori Party, the star path to Aotearoa has been laid down in this election to cherish diversity as a source of richness in decision-making and ways of living rather than conflict, to tackle poverty and inequality and take care of all New Zealanders in housing, health, education and employment, to understand our islands as living landscapes of plants, animals and people, and to find ways of making a living without destroying forests, rivers and the sea. A fairly tall order, but all these these things are interrelated. As the rest of all the world has recognised, we've found a stellar navigator to guide us on the journey. Let's hope the craft is fast, flexible, and fit for purpose. That will be down to business, the civil service and the local government as well as the politicians and that the crew stay calm, pull their weight, keep the waka trim and balanced and stick together even where the seas are raising, seas are raging, which they are. That's down to all of us. Again, what she suggests we have to do, we have to stay calm, pull our weight, keep the waka trim and balanced and stick together even when the seas are raging. So it's a spiritual challenge. It's really going to take nothing less than all we've got. climate crisis and, the, and the, the crisis of our biosphere in general demand that we, we act together and act to protect each other. And the pandemic, among, among the things that it has, has shined a light on, is the fact that we can do this when pressed. We have done it. It's possible. Could we, could we also mobilise for our forests and rivers and seas and all their inhabitants, animal and human? So a short while ago, um, during the, during the, the um, solar retreat, I read this book by Susan Murphy, which we're going to turn to now, called Minding the Earth, Mending the World. And it really um, is, is a wonderful, insightful book on how to face our planetary crisis. And it's, it's um, unlike many other books on the same topic, it comes from a poetic angle. It's beautifully written. And I think that a sense of beauty is one of the things that can help to sustain us as we, as we um, go down this difficult road ahead. Um, just a little bit first before we get into it about the author Susan Murphy. Um, she's a writer, she's a Zen teacher and a filmmaker. Um, mentions a, a, a book of hers, Upside Down Zen, that was published in 2004. She also has another more recent one called The Red Thread, which is also wonderful. Um, she, her film and television writing credits include The Midas Touch, um, Secrets, 
um, six one-off dramas. And um, in 1991, her own award-winning feature film as writer-director, Breathing Under the Water. In 1997, she was awarded a five-year QE2 Research Fellowship by the Australian Research Council in the Social Ecology of Sense of Place. Um, she's a frequent freelance producer of radio works for ABC Radio and 360 documentaries. And she lives um, both in Sydney and um, in Barrie, which I think is on the south coast of New South Wales. So turning to her book now, um, Minding the Earth, Mending the World, and we're starting with the, with the prologue, uh, which is entitled the, the Chair, the Kitchen Table. It is hard to say when this book began life. It seems at least as old as I am, but also far older. Perhaps the origin of any book, like the source of a river, is finally impossible to separate from all that is and will be. For which of a dozen or more feeder springs do you choose? Or earlier than that, which moss bank dripping over a rock ledge, which raindrop that fell in that catchment, and how to put a date to a raindrop which is really as old as the earth, and in fact even older, as old as the elements formed in the earliest supernovae explosions, or back to the start of time itself, arriving together with matter and energy some trillionth of a second after whatever unimaginable occurrence marked the birth of the ongoing revelation that we call the universe. So here, Susan Murphy is evoking a 3.8 billion year perspective. And when we do take up this perspective, it is, can, be, can be liberating. We can be full, filled with wonder and gratitude just because we exist. What is this something that we are a part of? This, this 3.8 billion year old unfolding. Why, as Leibniz asked, is there something rather than nothing? Clearly there is something, even though we have great trouble grasping what it is. What is it that we're a part of? She continues, For when we take that reference point to search for who we are and where and when we came from, Conventional reality is dramatically shaken out of its small-time habits, and that's useful because conventional reality is not serving us well right now. Its frame is too small and very dated when it comes to addressing the nature of what is happening on our planet and our extremely interesting part in that. This book came out in, in 2014, um, but it, it's very relevant to our um, COVID-19 world. <clears throat> I think more people are recognizing that the old frames are too small and too dated when it comes to facing um, the, the pandemic. But going back to the more tangible sources of this book, one moment that stands out took place in my late childhood on an ordinary morning when I casually drew my chair out from under the kitchen table to sit down for breakfast. It was the mid-60s, and I was 12 years old. The kitchen table was oak, old, round, and honey-colored, 
probably about 80 years old, bought for a song from the St. Vincent de Paul shop that had furnished most of our house. All our family meals were eaten around that table, and it was the scene of much talking, arguing, laughing, reading, homework, baking of bread, and drinking of wine. In short, it was our communion table. My older brother and sister and I had sat around the kitchen table late into the previous night. Our parents must have gone out somewhere and talked our way deep into the intense environmental pressures that were already being felt in the world. So, so Susan Murphy was the youngest. She was 12, so her, her brothers and sisters were a little bit older than that, um, still pretty young. And when we hear this about them sitting around the table talking about environmental pressures, we might think that that's a little unusual. And certainly it seems that they had a, a quite a wonderful um, early childhood life um, living in, in the wilds of, of, of Queensland. But I don't think that that's, we can say that that's the only factor in this. Um, kids do think about these things. Um, of course, the, the high-profile example that um, we've had in the last few years, Greta Thunberg, Children and young adults think about this with great intensity because they are the ones who are going to inherit the mess. She continues, Paul Ehrlich and others were already portending what would become known as the limits to growth, predicting nightmarish overpopulation and mass starvation scenarios for the 70s and 80s many of which were deferred, though not solved, for several decades by the short-term agricultural successes of the oil-fueled Green Revolution. And here the, the, the key thing is short-term. Um, if, if those of you who have already, haven't already looked in, into it, to understand um, how central Fossil fuels are to um, most farming is 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 um, sobering. Rachel Carson was already under fierce attack from the chemical industry for daring to point to the stark early warning signs of far-reaching environmental degradation by pesticides and the avalanche of extinctions that would form its wake. The incremental climb in global temperatures due to the hothouse effect of carbon emissions had been underway since 1950, but it was not yet part of public discussions, despite having been clearly predicted a century earlier. The more pressing climate threat at that time was the Cold War nuclear winter that would potentially extinguish most life on Earth following any extensive nuclear exchange the preferred way of referring to the release of hundreds of intercontinental ballistic missiles armed with hydrogen bomb warheads. So um, all, of the, all of the peace, this stuff, um, and certainly stuff that occupied my mind as a, as a, as a teenager and, and a young adult. Around the kitchen table that night, our hearts were wrapped in wonder as we consciously stared one by one at the spectres stalking our world. The mounting industrial assault on a shrinking and collapsing natural world. The effects of exploding human population upon environmental sustainability and biodiversity. And the deepening cycle of exploitation, injustice, poverty and hunger that the, quote, undeveloped world was apparently expected to bear in support of our own relatively easy lives. I think this, this is an important element in this, 
the, the human um, costs of our um, rampantly individualistic way of thinking. Um, this has also come out in the, in the pandemic, just the, the degree to which um, there are inequities for in, in our health, our education, and of course housing is huge. Our childhoods had been spent almost entirely barefoot, exploring lush Queensland rainforest, swimming in clear creeks, floating over brilliant coral reefs. The thought that we might be the last generation to live on a planet with seas full of fish, tigers roaming free, a vast intact Amazon forest was intolerable. Even our sheer good luck in living lives less impacted than those than most by the slow avalanche of ruin was painful. All of this was caught up in an unstoppable rush of words and feelings that night. We talked on and on in a state of terror, curiously mixed with intensely alive excitement, weighing up the fate of the world during our lifetime and our possible part in that. I think each of us sensed that facing the terror together was an act of love, forming deeper bonds between us. When we finally went to bed around three or four in the morning, I felt flattened, crushed. My mind was reeling, but also filled with new capacity. My whole being was large and alive with the thrilled sense of having taken on a little of the mantle of adult awareness. We, we may often fear exposing ourselves to the truth about our planetary crisis, but Susan Murphy here is pointing to something important, that, that to face reality, however grim it may seem, is also to become more alive. I remember the next morning as very bright, perhaps a shade too bright after the latest night of my life thus far. I had heaped cereal into my bowl and milk and walked to the same high-backed chair of the night before. The extraordinary night lay inside me as a kaleidoscope of amazing pieces of knowledge, sharp to the touch and overwhelmingly complicated but strangely precious. I set my bowl onto the table. I took hold of the back of the chair and pulled it out. I sat down and put my hands on the table. That was the moment of the tidal wave. It washed through me and left nothing as it had been before. I found myself swimming in a sea of marvellous awareness that all was well and completely at ease. This fact was utterly undisturbed by the equally plain fact that I chanced to be alive at a time of slow-burning catastrophe for the entire life system of the planet. All things are well, was how the anchoress Julian of Norwich put the same realization, and all manner of things shall be well. The clear knowing of this flooded my body and seemed to live vibrantly right inside every terrifying complication of the rider. And so much is wrong. I was astonished, and yet it seemed more like the astonishment of remembering something I had always known, something very deep lying and fundamentally fearless, even in the face of matters of overwhelming concern. In fact, it was intimately and completely at one with that concern, stirred to life by it. So, beautiful description here of an instance of what we would call in Zen, Kensho. And Kensho is sometimes translated as um, seeing the nature 
directly experiencing the truth. And it, it is it comes and can come in this this um, sudden way. And yet, at the same time, as as this as we have this can be quite earth shattering, or or, earth, or perhaps you could say earth earth con, con, congealing experience, unifying experience. At the same time, it's something ordinary. Something was known all along. Something absolutely intimate. Not coming from outside, from anywhere else. Intrinsic to our, our being. And this is what she, she talks about here, is that this, this um, powerful tidal wave, she describes it as, had, had emerged, had come from this concern over the planet. It was infin- intimately and completely at one with that concern, stirred to life by it. I felt immensely reassured without being pacified or soothed. Concern was never more clear and alive. Everything, the chair, the kitchen table, the sitting down and the placing of my hands either side of my willow pattern bowl of cereal bestowed, bestowed this blessing that we must rely on what is happening in order to learn how to proceed that we can dare to meet it fully just as it really is and that what is so urgently being called up in us flows naturally from daring to welcome a hard reality. Think of the, um, there's, a, there's a Japanese that saying, um, when I fall down I use the ground to get up. When I fall down on the ground, I use the ground to get up. She continues, just as it really is, and that's in quotes, cannot possibly hide the suffering and ruin and awfulness of things. And yet that is exactly what opens the way for the deep reassurance of all things to reach us. And with it, the possibility the fact that we are not helpless at all, that we all actively make this mysterious and wondrous world, and that everything we do counts. Our lives matter. What we do with our lives matters. My life matters as much as your life. Your life matters as much as my life. In fact, they're they're deeply entwined. She continues, I was bruised by wonder. A course was set. Don't miss anything. Everything, everyone counts. Find out what this means. Do what it wants of you. What does the universe ask us to do? Can we, can we listen? Can we become so quiet that we can still hear its still small voice? Don't miss anything. Everything, everyone counts. Find out what this means. Do what it wants of you. Emily Dickinson said, Life is so astonishing it leaves very little time for anything else. At that moment, I was Emily. Wonder is perfectly aware that we are all caught in a ridiculous posture right now. The posture of living normally as we destabilize climate, 
trash seas and earth and atmosphere and decimate species, whilst chanting a mantra of perpetual growth and unrestrained human population increase and watching all these accelerate in runaway train reaction. It is ridiculous to pretend it is not happening and almost equally ridiculous to mention it since no one can personally hope to change its course and no one much wants to even hear about it. Our position as a species is now so untenable that it verges on rudeness to mention it in polite company. It, it, it's almost like it, it takes a child to see it, how ridiculous this is. Someone who's not so invested in this ridiculous posture um, the other day, I looked again at um, Greta Thunberg's um, 2018 TED Talk, um, where she she um, scolds her audience for not being alarmed about what's happening, to going on business as usual. So catches this when she says, our position as a species is now so untenable that it verges on rudeness to mention in polite company. It took somebody, I guess, if we go back to Greta, on the spectrum, somebody who um, already feels on, on the outside of society to bring up this unsavory truth, to bring it up in polite company, to point to the elephant in the room. We can, we can uh, for all its, uh, the suffering it's caused, we can thank the, the pandemic for, for getting us to slow down and to stop, to look at ourselves, at least some of us, perhaps to, to appreciate just how untenable our, our, our position as a species is. She continues. But wonder does not stop at ridiculousness. For a start, it's nothing new. Were we ever not at least partly ridiculous, we smallish, frightened, mortal, highly conscious mammals with our opposable thumbs and opposable minds? And have we not always been at the mercy of forces, natural and human, that appeared to lie far beyond the scale of any personal action in response. Wonder just uses that as an energizing and even humorous prompt to wake up a little more imagination and awareness. Let's see, it seems to suggest. Don't flee. What about discovering more of what you are instead? very um, to the point description of, a, of we human beings frightened mortal highly conscious mammals but the, but the part that, that, that makes me smile the most here is with our opposable thumbs and opposable minds Opposable minds, our minds that divide everything into self and other. We even divide ourselves into self and other. One part of us judging and scolding some other badly behaving part. But but here she points to the this this truth that is is intimately connected and related to this opposable mind that we have. This invitation to take a look. 
Maybe that's even our job as human beings to 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 ask questions, to wonder about things. To to um, ignite our imagination. Don't flee. What about discovering more of what you are instead? See, in practice is one way of doing this. One one method of engagement, you could say. In in entering into this lifetime process of discovering more of what we are. We're all in this emergency together, all answerable to the terms of one great biosphere. And it has no boss. It just has each of us. Carl Jung addressed that fact, saying, each of us must remember that we are the make-weight that shifts the scale. Small acts mount up. Drops of water carve mountain ranges. Small is not powerless. William James said, I'm done with great things and big things, great institutions and big success. I am for those tiny, invisible, molecular moral forces that work from individual to individual, creeping through the crannies of the world like so many rootlets, or like the capillary oozing of water, yet which, if you give them time, will rend the hardest monuments of man's pride. Reminded not for us not to belittle our small efforts, our local things that we do. These can be replicated and spread. They can influence others. Very small acts can be can be powerful. They can catch on and spread like like the the small virus can turn what now we have this this term viral. Our time is is nearly up. Um, I'd like to just finish by returning to Anne Salmon's article and um, finish our talk with with her, with her. Um, Final part of her article, where she she um, quotes a a poem or a chant that she received from her mentor and, and teacher, Eruera Sterling. And I'm not going to, to mangle it by doing it in, in the in the in the rail, but I'll I'll um, I'll read just read the translation. Listen, listen, listen to the cry of the bird calling. Bind, join, be one. Bind above, bind below. Bind within, bind without. Tie the knot of humankind. The night hears, the night hears. Bind the lines of people coming down from great Hawaii, from long Hawaii. From Hawaii, far away, bind to the spirit, to the daylight, and to the world of light. Te ao marama. Each of us can can take to heart this this um, call to us from this this ancient chant. Fakarongo, fakarongo, fakarongo. Listen, listen, listen. It reminds me something of the spirit of Kanon, this chant, where it says later, Karongo te po, Karongo te po, the night hears, the night hears. Something profoundly um, connected in our listening and the world hearing.
and the binding, the binding of things, the holding things together as one. Stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma again. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.